Section 13 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marissa Sheldon. Antonia by Georges Sand. Translated by Georges Burnham Eves. Section 13. Those moments, swiftly as they passed, seemed afterward like a century in her memory, for the light shone into her heart in a single dazzling ray. "'Your happiness is found,' said an inward voice in a tone of sovereign authority. "'It is here. It consists in nothing less than the possession of a boundless love, concealed in the bosom of a narrow, straitened existence. Julien's mother knew and enjoyed that happiness throughout her youth.' Intercourse with the world and opulence added nothing to her happiness. They rather diminished it by introducing ideas foreign to love. Forget society. You will be the better for it. Break with your whole past, which deceived you, and set you at odds with yourself. Become reconciled to your own beginnings, which are more nearly connected with the third estate than with the nobility, and to your conscience, which reproaches you for having listened to the advice of false glory and for having yielded to the threats of your ambitious kinsfolk. Seek to be received back in favor by the God who abandons souls which are enamored of false joys. Be true, be strong like this young man who adores you and who has just revealed to you in a glance the greatest and noblest passion you will ever inspire." As she listened to this mysterious voice in her own heart, Julie looked about her and was surprised to find that a divine tranquillity succeeded to the agitation which had overwhelmed her. She thoroughly relished the charm of a very simple little phenomenon. Short-sighted though she was, she was able to see everything in a room so much smaller than those to which she was accustomed. A very humble dwelling was that Louis the Thirteenth pavilion but it was embellished by a tastefulness of arrangement which revealed the artist whose love of refinement was not lessened by poverty. The building was not ugly in itself. The deep, broad window recess where the widow had installed her armchair as in a little sanctum, with her spinning wheel, her little table, and the cushion for her feet, imparted a sort of home-like Flemish aspect to that part of the studio. The rest had been recently restored, but with the strictest economy. Plain gray wainscoting with raised borders to the panels, straight lines everywhere, but nothing out of proportion. A white ceiling, rather low, but devoid of any crushing effect. Above the doors, oval spaces with very simple garlands of foliage carved on wood and painted, as was the beating of the panels, a deeper shade of gray than the rest. Two or three beautiful fruit and flower pieces, highly prized specimens of André Thierry's work, with several sketches and one or two small studies by Julien, a large bowl of Rouen porcelain standing on a console in front of a mirror and filled with wild flowers and green branches gracefully arranged and hanging to the floor, a small rug before the couch, two or three easels, shells, boxes of insects, statuettes, and engravings on a large table, cane-seated oak chairs, and a small harp, whose old gilded frame glistened in the dark corner, the only brilliant object in the whole room. Surely there was nothing in all this to denote great affluence, but over it all there was a varnish of exquisite neatness, an atmosphere of freshness, and a soft light most conducive to reverie. 
The studio was darkened a little by the lilacs in the garden, which were too near and too dense, but there was a strange fascination in that greenish light, and there was in the air an indefinable invitation to rapt contemplation, which Julie felt most profoundly. What more did one need than a humble and unpretentious retreat to taste the pure joy and unending bliss of moral security? Of what benefit was it to Julie to have magnificent furniture, a thousand trinkets on her whatnots at which she never looked, blue ceilings starred with gold over her head, goblin carpets under her feet, Sevres vases to hold her bouquets, lackeys in gold lace to announce her friends, her pockets full of Chinese fans, and her jewel cases of diamonds. All these things had amused her but a single day, and what playthings can divert a heart that is bored? Julien's austere and laborious life, his pathetic, never-ending tete-a-tete with his mother, his love, concealed and prostrate as he himself had said, these were surely purer and nobler than the existence, surrounded by flattery, of a frivolous or blasé nobleman. A sparrow, which Julien had tamed and which lived among the neighboring trees, entered the studio and lighted familiarly on Julie's shoulder. She was surprised for a moment and thought that it was a miracle, a presage of happiness or of victory. She was really bewildered with emotion. At last, Madame Thierry appeared, sorely perturbed and deeply moved. She had insisted upon being left alone with the countess for an instant. She threw herself at her feet and, being at once compelled by her to rise, spoke thus to her. "'You are kind, as the angels, my lovely neighbor. I bless you a thousand times, but I must tell you of my sorrow as well as my joy. My son, dear Julien, is lost if he does not abandon all hope of ever seeing you again. He loves you, madame. He loves you madly. He deceived me.' He told me that he had hardly seen you in the distance, but he sees you every day. He gazes at you stealthily. He is driving himself wild. He is killing himself by looking at you. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He has lost all his cheerfulness. His eyes are hollow. His voice rings with fever. He has never loved before. But I know how he will love, how he loves already. Alas, he has an excitable temperament with a mind of extraordinary constancy. Discourage him, if possible, madame, by not looking at him, by not speaking to him, by never seeing him again. Have mercy on him and on me, and do not come to our house again. In a few days we shall go away. Absence will cure him, perhaps. If it does not cure him, I do not know what I shall do to avoid dying of grief. Madame Thierry sobbed bitterly, and there was in her tears an eloquence born of conviction which dealt Julie the last blow. Her whole dream of happiness seemed destined to vanish in face of this mother's despair. That delicious reverie which had poured such balm into her heart was a mere vagary at which she herself would smile when she returned home. Had she decided to break all social bonds in order to throw herself into the arms of a man whom she had just seen for the first time? That was a most absurd idea, and Madame Thierry was a thousand times right in looking upon it as impossible. Julie made an effort to agree with her and to drive away the vertigo that had assailed her, but the charm must have been exceedingly potent, for it seemed to her that reason had torn the heart out of her breast, and instead of devising some dignified and sensible response to encourage the poor mother, she threw herself into her arms and followed her example by bursting into tears. 
These tears so surprised Madame Thierry that she nearly lost her head. She dared not ask for an explanation of them, nor indeed had she any time to do so, for Julien and Marcel entered the room. "'Come, come, my dear mother,' said the former. "'You weep too much, and I am sure that you have forgotten to thank Madame and make up your mind what to do. Marcel tells me that you ought also to thank Monsieur Thierry in person, and to go to his house tomorrow to—' At that moment, Julien, who was trying to see Julie's face, which was turned toward the window, detected the furtive movement she made to conceal and wipe away her tears. He forced back an exclamation and involuntarily stepped toward her. Marcel, who saw the extraordinary confusion of the two women, but could not understand it at all, unless it meant that Madame Thierry had had an attack of hysterics and had said something too affecting to the countess— tried to take up Julien's interrupted silence and continued the conversation. Yes, yes, he said. Tomorrow we are to attend the christening of... But he followed Julien's example and stood with staring eye and parted lip, unable to utter another word, for he had glanced not at Julie but at the plant which he was about to name and saw that it was reduced to a parcel of leaves from which protruded a broken stalk wet with the sap that dropped from it like tears. Where is it? he cried in dismay. Great God, Julien, what have you done with it? Where is the Antonia? Nobody answered. Madame Thierry looked at Julien, who looked at nobody but Madame d'Estrelle, and Madame d'Estrelle, who knew nothing of the lily, did not know what to think of her solicitor's unaffected dismay. What are you looking for, pray? she said, rising. And as she rose, she dropped at her feet the Antonia, which— when she was left alone, she had taken from the vase again and laid lovingly on her knees. Madame Thierry understood at once. Marcel simply noticed the fact. He had no suspicion of the real explanation. "'Ah, madame!' he exclaimed. "'To any other than you, I should say that you have ruined us. But what can I say to you? And, after all, why need we fear when you are the culprit? Uncle Antoine cannot possibly be angry with you, as you did not know.' Did not Julien tell you? Evidently, Julien did not explain matters to our benefactress, said Madame Thierry, but she must see that everybody here is not in his right mind, and that, by seeking to assist us, she runs the risk of adding to our woes. You are the one who is not in her right mind, mother, cried Julien vehemently. Really, I don't understand you today. You are overexcited. Your words betray your thoughts. It seems that, instead of thanking Madame d'Estrelle, you have been confiding to her some dreams or other. Julien continued to scold his mother, who began to weep afresh. Marcel, observing Madame d'Estrelle's stupefaction, led her aside and gave her, in three words, the key to the mystery, and with it tangible proof, so to speak, of the young artist's ardent passion. She was profoundly affected at first, but she recovered her presence of mind and summoned all her strength to turn aside the blow which threatened the family. "'Leave it to me,' she said to Madame Thierry, striving to be cheerful. "'I take everything on myself. It was I who committed the sin. It is for me to repair it.' "'The sin? What sin?' cried Julien. "'Yes, yes, I took a fancy to that flower and asked you for it. "'No, no, what am I saying? I am losing my mind. "'It was I who broke it, a foolish caprice, in a fit of absent-mindedness. "'You are not here. I am awkward. I can't see very well. "'However, I will explain it all to your uncle. "'Mon Dieu, what do you expect that he will do? "'He won't beat me. 
I will humbly beg his forgiveness. He is not so hard-hearted. Alas, said Madame Thierry, unfortunately he is very hard-hearted when he is injured, and if he knew that Julien had committed this sacrilege... So it was really Julien who did it? said Marcel, utterly dumbfounded. This is very strange. Well, yes, it was I, I alone, replied Julien vehemently, and there is nothing strange about it. Yes, indeed there is, said Marcel in an undertone, his eyes suddenly opened to the secret of the catastrophe. You are a little too mad, my boy, and your heart must be as fickle as your brain to sacrifice your mother's future and your own in this way, to say nothing of the fact that Madame d'Estrelle is too kind, and that she would have done much better to teach you your place. Hush, Marcel, hush, said Julien. You are talking nonsense. You don't understand. I understand too well, replied Marcel, and, on my word, I agree with your mother now. I say that you are losing your wits. This dialogue in undertones was carried on in the window recess, while the two women stood together near the vase in which Madame Thierry was trying to replant the stock of the beheaded lily, talking at random and saying nothing which had the slightest meaning, for her greatest source of perturbation was not the Antonia, but the storm of passion which had caused its destruction. Suddenly Julien, who was in the habit of handling the curtain and examining the slit through which he looked into the garden, roughly enjoined silence on Marcel, grasping his arm and whispering, "'For God's sake, hush! There is somebody outside listening!' End of section 13